Come on, Jock. You're always telling me to show a little backbone. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Indiana Jones Universe, the podcast that explores the expanded universe of Indiana Jones as we discuss the Young Indie Television series, the Further Adventures comic books, the Staff of Kings and Emperor's Tomb video games, and so much more. As always, I'm Will. And I'm Max. And thanks for joining us for episode 67, in which today we're continuing our discussion and exploration of the Marvel comic series The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones with issue number 15, The Sea Butchers. In this one, Indiana Jones reunites with one of his friends from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jock Lindsay, as they fly in a plane together as Indy photographs the site of a Chinese temple on an island in the North Pacific. Indy then goes back to Marshall College with Marcus and realizes they might be looking at the statue of the Shenghua. So, Indy decides to break his friend Simon Katanga out of prison as together they travel on the Bantu Wind to go to the island themselves, but they encounter a band of pirates. So in a classic Indy-style adventure that sees Indy reunite with some of his classic friends from the original adventure itself, let's jump into this one, shall we? Yes, we shall. So... We start off with this first scene where there is some dialogue and also these beautiful planes. I mean, these planes, the art that went into it, I mean, it's just so beautiful. It actually kind of reminds me of, like, the uh, plane scenes from, like, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and some of the young indie plane scenes as well. Yeah, definitely. I think what's really awesome about this one is it has a really different feel to it at the start, especially with the return of Jock Lindsay. You know, we obviously see that Indy is riding a plane with him. And I think it's really cool to definitely see how that also isn't really reflected in the cover at all. Uh, you'll notice the cover has this kind of really cool sort of like almost looks like some industrial complex as Indy is knocking some sense into a couple guys. And we see him, this great shot of him, by the way, uh, with this huge whip slung over his shoulder as he's about ready to crack it. And yeah, there's some warehouse boxes flying all over the place. And yeah, very interesting as it then transitions into, like you said, this like beautiful shot of a plane over one of these islands, kind of in the North Pacific area, somewhere around Alaska, as uh, Jock and Indy say. And I also love the, you know, the dialogue between Indy and Jock in the beginning is, you know, uh, it's so great. He's like, you know, they think they found it, but, you know, they want to fly by. And Jock's like, absolutely not. And then our quote from uh, this morning, you know, Indy kind of fires back at Jock saying to show a little backbone since that's what Jock always tells Indy. Yeah, you know, I think when you have the return of Jock Lindsay... I loved seeing that in there. I remember the first time I read this, I just was literally thrilled that they threw that in there because for a character like Jock, you know, who doesn't have that much screen time, there are certain staples that make the character of Jock such a fan favorite. I mean, who doesn't like Jock, right? Especially if you're an Indiana Jones fan. So if you're going to bring him back, why not include something that fans remember and that fans enjoy? And especially giving us kind of a sense for like that inside joke with like Reggie and, you know, show a little backbone, will ya? That all started in Raiders, and to continue that tradition during Indy's life, almost in kind of a scene for Indy and Jock, not necessarily just for us, but also for their friendship, I think is a really cool idea. And to be honest, I really liked that, that Jock was back in here, and I, I felt like it was kind of cool that they also did kind of a similar thing, where he was just flying with Indy. It wasn't like he was in the whole comic, he wasn't in the whole adventure, but he was utilized in the same way he was in Raiders. Um, so I thought that was really cool. 
Um, and I also really like as well, like you said, kind of the witty banter between them, you know. Uh, and it even reminds me a little bit of Attack of the Hawkmen, almost kind of the opposite. In this case, Indy wants to stay and take more photos, where if you remember in that episode, Indy was frightened out of his, you know, wits to take all these photos of all these sites that they saw and all these, you know, German biplanes and stuff. And here, he's so intent on getting that last little photo, which I thought was kind of an interesting change here. Yeah, another thing I also like is Jock, you know, he references uh, his uh, pet snake Reggie, and he's like, he's quite a comfort. For a boa constrictor. <laughs> right, exactly. Overall, I, I just love the kind of fun banter that starts off this comic with Jock. Uh, really kind of, it almost feels nostalgic to me. Um, more than some of these other comics where they jump you into something new or it's like a big action sequence or something. Here, I, I think it's nostalgia that they were going for. And to be quite honest with you, you know, I mean, we've talked about this in the past with these comics. You know, fans could submit questions and ideas, and they even show some of that at the end with the readers of the Lost, you know, arc uh, kind of section that they always have at the end. Um, and I'm sure, at least my guess would be, that the incorporation of Jock here was probably a fan suggestion. Um, I could only hope that that's what, uh, that's where the author got the idea for this, because I just, I definitely feel like there were fans who really were pushing for this, and I think it was a great way to incorporate him, you know, I mean, Jock is someone who really just doesn't have, I feel like, enough uh, in the Indiana Jones universe, I guess, um, he's just kind of one of those fun characters who we don't really know much about him either, and I'd love to learn more about him, you know. Um, so I think it's kind of fun that, that he just has that and that just, at least for fans and also for indie, I guess, there is a little bit of nostalgia in both ways, um, while also trying to tie this into a new adventure. Yes, definitely. And, you know, you were talking about how Indy wants to get every last photo this time and he's like, you know, right after he gets the last one, he tells Jock to go home and he's like, I'm afraid that's going to be easier said than done because, you know, they know they're going to get into trouble if they're, you know, whenever Indy is in a plane, whether he's flying it or Jock or someone else is flying it, you know there's going to be trouble. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's just that's just the staple of Indiana Jones right there. Anytime Indy takes charge of a vehicle, whether it's tanks, trucks, motorcycles, planes, you name it, there's already going to be danger. You just know that immediately. That is a staple of the Indiana Jones action. Uh, so yeah, that, that's kind of funny that you bring that up because I think that definitely we can see that too, even though he's not actually flying the plane, uh, just giving Jock some bad ideas already. Um, but another thing as well that I thought was kind of interesting is we see Jock does another flyby, uh, of course, after Indy Peer pressures him into doing it. And uh, <laughs> we see this Japanese cruiser is down there. After they snap that last photo of the temple, they uh, see the Japanese cruiser and they uh, go and do a flyby and the people who were shooting at him stop. But then the Japanese cruiser starts opening fire all over them. And then they fly away and Indy uh, ends with his classic line, which, you know, he always says, he's like, trust me. And I mean, you know, it's just such a classic to bring that back. Kind of reminds me of the movies. Yeah, definitely. Uh, especially when he says that in pretty much anything, uh, that's always a classic to add in there. And especially with Jock here, who really, you know, it's, it's ironic that Jock is the one flying here and gets all the bad ideas from Indy. Uh, it's kind of funny that they throw that in there. And again, just sort of the charisma between these two, I think really comes across in this as we were talking about. Um, and one thing I actually wanted to mention, just kind of about this, like, mini-adventure as a whole, you know, one thing I was thinking about, the more and more we do these comics, and I think, I can't remember if I mentioned this at one point uh, in the last episode we did a comic for, but 
what I think is kind of interesting about these comics is how all of these adventures are kind of on a smaller scale. And what I mean by that is it's interesting, I think, at one point to kind of maybe criticize the comics and say that, oh, all of these adventures are cliche or all of them are so similar. They always have sort of this um, MacGuffin that is kind of similar that has a little bit of super supernatural element. But, you know, Marcus knows about it at the Marshall College and he tells him about the historical archaeology of it. And then there's always, you know, fights with pirates or goons, and then this enemy who has lust for power and dies from his own sort of greed, and then Marion's in there, you know, there's always a love story, and so it just kind of goes over and over and over. But on the other hand, you know, it's not every day that you find the Lost Ark of the Covenant. And what I mean by this is, like, that adventure specifically was so specific and was such a big deal, especially for Indy being this kind of nerdy professor at Marshall College, to the point where it's like we hold these movies as sort of the epitome and sort of staple and structure for what each adventure to be, but in reality, those were kind of special circumstances, right? Especially going after, you know, the Sankara Stones or going after the Holy Grail. Those were like the real special adventures, whereas these are kind of just like, you know, Indy going on a weekend finding, you know, some lost treasures when, you know, he's not teaching. You know what I mean? So it's not like every day he's going to find those things. And so this, I think, is a really great representation of some of these more like, oh, Indy's, you know, he has a weekend off or whatever, and he goes in this small, you know, archaeological adventure or whatever the case may be. So I think in that way, I was thinking about that as I was rereading this comic. And I really thought, you know, I think it gave me a larger appreciation for the smaller scale stories this time, if you think about it in that way. So I always thought that that was kind of interesting. And, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe there's, you know, an instance in which we see one of these on a bit of a grander scale. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, this really does give us an inside look of what Indy's life is on a day-to-day -day basis, obviously when he's not teaching at Marshall College. But, you know, I also think that, you know, you're absolutely right about the movies. The movies are the special circumstances. You know, as you said, you don't find the Ark every single day, or you also don't find a crystal skull every single day where aliens come to life and stuff. You know, that just does that's not something that happens on a day-to-day -day basis of an archaeologist, you know. That's just a rare occasion, whereas this isn't necessarily, you know, so special that, you know, it deserves its own movie or something like that. I mean, it's just, Indy is, you know, he's kind of going about his day on his day-to-day -day life like nothing has ever happened. And he actually shows that there, where he decides to just use a, you know, standard old rusty sea anchor to uh, completely damage the uh, uh, enemy plane. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty funny scene, actually, when he just grabs this rusty anchor and just throws it in midair and somehow it latches onto the plane and breaks it in half. Um, again, we're not going to even talk about that because there's lots of logistics to go over there. So we're just going to move past it and assume that that just works. Um, but actually during that scene, there was another thing I wanted to mention actually. First of all, I like how um, Jock calls Indy Doc. Uh, of course, Indy does have a doctorate degree, Dr. Jones. Uh, but I've never really heard anyone called him that, more specifically Jock. So I thought it was interesting that he calls him Doc. Um, and there's actually a cool scene there, which I thought was a really, really nice detail in terms of authenticity, where you can see during that sort of sketch when Jock does call Indy Doc, uh, you can see Indy holding his hat as if there was wind coming through the plane. Really like that little detail there. That's not something that you would notice, really. Um, so the fact that, you know, the, the comic artist, uh, you know, really kind of got into the environments that Indy and also all the characters are really shows that level of detail there that I really liked. And another thing as well that I mentioned, this is more of a criticism, I am not a fan of Jock's hat in this one. Uh, there was really only one, maybe two close-ups on Jock's face, 
And you'll notice he doesn't really look like Jock. Now, in fairness, we haven't really seen Jock very closely, so I'm going to cut them some slack. But at least the hat, the whole point of Jock was the fact that he just had this Yankees cap on. Now, you might argue, well, he's flying in the middle of midair, but the same thing happens in Raiders. He's flying in midair, you know, across the sunset and has a Yankees cap on that somehow doesn't fly off his head. So I really wish they would have put that in there, because to me, that was one of, if not the most important staple of Jock after the whole pet snake Reggie thing. And I was really disappointed that wasn't included here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was kind of disappointed, too. I mean, it honestly doesn't look like Jock. It looks like Jock, but about 20 years older. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, he has he's a much bigger guy. You know, he has more of kind of an angry face and that big, bald kind of, you know, uh, pilot's cap that you would always uh, see on, uh, like, older TV shows and, like, older fighter jets. Right, exactly. And so it's just kind of one of those things, like, it's not bad what he's wearing, but Jock has a specific attire, right? It's kind of like Indy, right? Uh, we talked about this in Staff of Kings. The fact that he doesn't have the satchel, well, you're kind of missing one piece of the puzzle there. Sure, he's got the fedora, sure, he's got the leather jacket, but all of it together makes the character. And that's the same deal with Jock here, right? Sure, he talks about the pet snake Reggie. Sure, he's got his own, you know, Air Pirates uh, shirt on, and, you know, he's got the whole plane, and he's flying Indy all over the place. But you gotta have the Yankees cap on. And that ties the whole thing together. So, yeah, um, not the biggest deal, but whatever. Um, anyway, yeah, so going to the next scene here, right, as, you're, as you were mentioning, as they get closer to the ship, you know, enemy starts to open fire. And uh, what's interesting as well here is we have kind of this cool idea of almost like, Indy and uh, Jock escaping at the last second, which is kind of similar to what we see in the sort of uh, scene in Raiders, right, with the whole trust me quote, like you were saying. And so Indy, you know, obviously puts his surroundings to good use uh, as he grabs the rusty sea anchor during the tight roll, and you kind of fly off into, into the sunset there, almost like an envision and hear the music of Flight from Peru as we see that shot of them going off into the distance. And so I really like that that almost kind of moment was reenacted within the comics here. Yes, and I also really love how Indy actually latches on uh, when he latches onto the plane, he's as sayonara suckers as the plane heads towards the ground and the commander is looking on and, ha yeah, I guess they are over a um, ocean or a body of water because he says to dispatch the longboat to the drowned aircraft, meaning, you know, he probably crashed into the ocean. Yeah, I really like that they kind of had that, again, we were talking about this earlier with the whole sort of like uh, cruiser here, the Japanese cruisers. We obviously see the commander there, uh, Hirito, uh, I think is the name of him. Uh, and he, yeah, he says that remark about India is, you know, we obviously see them flying off and that sort of thing. Uh, and then obviously their plane obviously goes down. Um, and one thing actually I think we didn't mention uh, that I thought was interesting during that whole narration sequence, by the way, when we see India latching onto the plane, apparently uh, Jock's seaplane is unarmed. Uh, which actually I think is important to mention because we don't actually see Indy shooting, right? He's obviously in the other compartment as Jock's flying the plane, but Indy is never shooting anything. So they have this unarmed scene plane, and so that's kind of where the whole like uh, grappling hook or anchor thing comes into play as Indy is able to grab the enemy. Um, yeah, but then of course we have the classic transition back to the National Museum at Marshall College, and there's uh, Marcus, of course, observing all of Indy's photos, which apparently uh, were a little bit blurry and uh, didn't really show the temple uh, mount very well. Um, but despite the low resolution, uh, Indy is pretty positive that he saw the statue of Sheng Hua, or the patron god of Chinese mariners. Uh, so basically, uh, the kind of the gist here is there's this whole idea that um, this could be sort of this revelation in terms of um, the sort of discovery of cross-cultural development 
development of sort of Northwestern tribes, the idea of like the Eskimos and sort of like uh, these different sort of Chinese tribes that used to be there. And basically finding a statue would confirm sort of any settlements or civilizations there. So we've kind of seen this idea before, but it's a really cool backstory as well. And, you know, going off of that, I love the MacGuffins in all of these comics. I'm sure I've said this before, but the more and more we reread these and the more and more we talk about them, you know, I just think about Crystal Skull and, you know, while I do think that the MacGuffin in that movie was pretty interesting, there was obviously a lot of uh, sort of tension and sort of, you know, disagreement between the idea of incorporating the Crystal Skull into that movie. Whereas here, what I really thought was interesting is, you know, they really are able to use, like, a lot of MacGuffins and they you know, they really kind of, like, pull them out of nowhere pretty quickly. I mean, I'm assuming these comics came out in a matter of a couple of weeks, and the fact that they had all of these great sort of archaeological, you know, sort of artifacts that they were able to incorporate in time to the story, at least to me, was really impressive. Because I know George Lucas and Spielberg as well have mentioned that the hardest part about the movies is the MacGuffin and getting it right. Now, sure, that's a movie that's on a grander scale, but there was a lot of debate and discussion about how it took them forever to decide on the Crystal Skull, and even then, fans weren't satisfied. And here in a matter of weeks, uh, the, you know, the authors and the artists are able to come up with, at least in my opinion, really, really impressive uh, archaeological artifacts that also incorporate a little bit of that supernatural element. You know, it's not like as epic as, say, the Crystal Skull or the Sankara Stones, but it has a little bit there, kind of like the Ark of the Covenant, where it's more archaeological based, but then still has the supernatural element as well. But anyway, really impressed with all the MacGuffins, at least in in the comics we've reviewed here so far. And, you know, I also love the uh, kind of, you know, I don't know if it's cliche to say, but Indy ends up back at Marshall College with Marcus. Marcus is always there in almost every single comic, and I really love, uh, you know, they always incorporate Marcus in every single of the comics, and I kind of like that because, you know, he's not in every single Indiana Jones movie. He's not in y Young Indy, and in Young Indy there's not really a re current character besides really Remy, but that he doesn't appear in every single episode, whereas Marcus d appears in every single comic here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that Marcus is such a staple of these comics, yet he never comes in the adventures. I'm sure we've mentioned this before, but like, it's kind of interesting that, you know, Indy and Marcus are obviously great friends, but the way he's incorporated is he's kind of at Marshall College, and sort of, that's really kind of the sort of background and sort of, I guess, iconic part of Marshall, of Marcus is he's a little bit more conservative than Indy, right? He doesn't go doing all these daring adventures and, you know, uh, all these sort of, sort of big action stunts or whatever the case may be, right? He's more conservative. He's at Marshall College. He's really kind of doing history. Kind of reminds us of maybe Indy's father, right? And we kind of saw that in Raiders where Marcus was almost a little bit more of the father figure in the beginning. And then, of course, Last Crusade comes up and we saw that Marcus was a little bit more comical there. Um, but yeah, I love how he's kind of the staple of of all of these comics and it's interesting as well that you know like you said he doesn't really come on the adventures um but yeah in order to find the matching statue they're obviously going to have to take some cargo back and so indy's like we're going to need a captain who doesn't ask a lot of questions and of course that's when our second reoccurring character comes up another favorite of mine captain simon katanga uh, of course one of my favorite scenes in raiders is that classic scene with katanga when indy uh reaches the german sub and gives him that classic salute as the ride to the nazi hideout music plays and then we see that classic salute back from first mate and katanga uh, so it's great to see him back in a similar uniform here while he's also in jail. Uh, you'll notice he actually has the uh, his sailing cap on while he's in this sort of jail cell, which I thought was funny. Yes, I do really love how they incorporated that cap, and I also love the dialogue here, you know. It's so casual. He's like, how are you doing, Simon? And he's like, I'm doing very well, my friend, you know, considering that he's in jail. He's 
you know, he's doing as well as he possibly can be behind bars. Right, exactly. And I like how he says Indiana Jones. Um, it's, it's a classic. You know, anytime people say Indiana Jones, at least for me, that kind of comes out as one of those big moments of, like, how many people Indiana Jones has met. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but, like, everyone always says Indy as if it's kind of his nickname. So when someone says in full Indiana Jones, that always sticks with me. Especially, you know, for some of these historical figures, like in the Young Indy episodes. Um, my favorite example of this is probably in The Scandal of 1920, which we haven't reviewed yet. Uh, but there's a scene when Indy uh, goes with Kate um, to the, uh, the round table, the Algonquin round table. And I think it's Dorothy Wolcott who, you know, after this long discussion says, welcome to the round table, Indiana Jones. And so to be with all these historical figures and say his name, Indiana Jones, I don't know, at least for me, that kind of resonates with me as kind of like that wow moment. Um, so even in this sort of casual case with Katanga, I like that he says his full name here. And it's kind of a nice, you know, familiar exchange. Uh, obviously, we're actually not really sure uh, the whole backstory behind why Katanga is in jail. Apparently, there was some issue uh, with some shipment of rum, and he's kind of in the jail temporarily. Uh, and Indy says a, a, a great remark. He says, what I'm after is worth about an ocean full of rum. Uh, so, you know, of course, Katanga's a little bit wary of signing on with Indy. And he's like, uh, you know, okay, it's a deal. Uh, and then we see that other guy who's kind of in the bunker giving this weird smile at the end. Yes, the guy on the bunk does smile. He said It says that he smiles the slyest of them all. But anyway, you know, uh, one hour later, uh, Indy is walking with Captain Katanga on the docks. And, you know, uh, Katanga is, you know, kind of catching up with Indy, uh, t uh, asking Indy about uh, how he escaped his Nazi captors. Yeah, and I love how he mentions that we have a mutual friend, Sala. Uh, he told me you had escaped your Nazi captors. I love that line there, because uh, let's keep in mind as well, uh, Sala was the one who introduced Indy to Captain Katanga. Uh, if you remember in Raiders, of course, uh, they're trying to get uh, passage back after they actually get the Ark, and they put it on board the Bantu Wind, and uh, Sala introduces his great friend, Simon Katanga. Uh, so I really like that kind of that comes back to remind you of that. Um, and, of course, we see that there are some other guys who arrive at the dock for some, quote-unquote, unfinished business, as we can see. And uh, then we see kind of the scene which has the cover art on the front as this crane comes smashing through. And Indy fends for himself as he grabs a rope and kicks a bunch of the guys that uh, are kind of coming for him. Yeah, he's like, unfinished business. And, you know, uh, he's like, not that I know of. They could just be mean. And then they get into this kind of huge brawl where, you know, they kind of knock stuff over. And, you know, there's bats flying everywhere. It's kind of a decent fight scene. I just love how they open the net of all these cargo crates and they just come crashing down to the ground. Yeah, and Indy, like, quickly evades them in two seconds, and to be honest, this entire fight scene is actually pretty lengthy. I mean, like, we're getting close to, like, sort of like a, a fight scene in, like, Staff of Kings or something, or Emperor's Tomb. Like, it's, it's a long battle that, like, really is kind of over a couple of pages here, and we see that there's kind of this uh, mini truck chase as Indy jumps on the back of it, and one of my, probably my favorite sketch from this comic, I don't know why, maybe it's just the coloring and the shading, as Indy jumps off the back of the truck and hangs on his fingertips on that balcony outside what turns out to be a gringo uh as he of course he comes up the balcony goes in there and then is like oops and then runs out the other side of the door which i thought was funny and it's just a really really cool shot i think it just i love the coloring of it and it just looks cool as well seeing indy hanging there jumping off of the truck it really reminds you of like something in raiders for example 
Yeah, definitely. And I really love how he, you know, went up to the balcony. It kind of almost is a reverse of what happens in Temple of Doom, where they, uh, they leave, um, Club Obi-Wan, and it's kind of the opposite, uh, but, you know, as soon as Indy exits the room, there's guys already back on the balcony, and they're right back to the scene where, uh, Indy decides he's going to, uh, slam the door in someone's face, and the guy goes flying right through the door. Yeah, can we talk about that scene for a minute? Because uh, it's funny, because uh, Indy says, you know, ah, great, the guy's tailed me. Looks like i got to get out of this one, or, you know, something along those lines. You know, one of those kind of, like, inner thoughts that we see. And there's actually a lot of those, which I thought was interesting. We see sort of these sort of sly and farcical remarks from Indy, uh, you know, all over the place in this sort of extended fight scene. Anyway, uh, he decides to set up this obstacle for the guys coming through, and it cuts to the next comic strip where he just shut the door of the room but for whatever reason the guy doesn't notice so a he doesn't stop b he doesn't open the latch of the door and c he doesn't actually like fall into the door he crashes through this like thick wooden door i thought it was hilarious uh because it does kind of remind you of like indy using his environment as you know it's kind of this quick turnaround where indy goes through the hallway slams the door and the guy just comes running right through like that's straight out of a charlie chaplin movie or something (laughs) it just reminds you kind of that yeah, literally. And also, Indy, you know, once he's like, ooh, the doors are locked, he just jumps out the window uh, right. right off the balcony <laughs> and hangs onto a flagpole, but uh, doesn't go so well for him. I mean, that is straight out of Charlie Chaplin movies. Who does, like, a nosedive across the balcony, across the street, onto a flagpole hanging from someone's building? Sorry, that doesn't just happen in regular life. Right, I mean, that's Indiana Jones for you. And it's funny because I love the kind of shot. He's like, oop, overshot the landing. Yeah, I'd say so. You jumped out of a window. What'd you expect was going to be out there? Right, because he thought the balcony would be there that he climbed up from before. Uh, But then he goes right into the road and, and grabs on that flagpole, which was hilarious. And, um, yeah, and then it's kind of funny because as he, you know, the flagpole is ripping, he falls into a pile of melons. And, you know, it's funny because that kind of reminds me of kind of this sort of farcical element. Um, and actually something that actually kind of reminded me of this, um, this is like veering a little bit off topic, but, um, for any of you who are, who are James Bond fans and, Speaking of which, I feel like we've mentioned this before, but there are actually a few James Bond and Indiana Jones sort of references. Um, not as extensive as like the, the the Star Wars stuff, but a little just kind of like fun stuff that we'll eventually talk about at some point. Uh, but anyway, uh, for those of you who saw the movie Spectre, the latest uh, film, which No Time to Die is coming out soon, which is which is going to be fun. Um, but anyway, there's a scene in Spectre, the opening scene, in which uh, Daniel Craig uh, shoots uh, Skiara, Marco Skiara, the the enemy in that. And uh, then the building blows up in kind of this, uh, I think it's Mexico City where they are, and the cracks of the building start falling over. So you have this like intense action sequence where this like building is literally falling on top of him. Um, And so he has to run down through all this rubble and he jumps kind of like an Indiesque moment where he jumps onto this like hook that was on the inside of the building because he's now in the building where it's like collapsing on him. And then the hook falls, and you think he's going to go tumbling to his death, and he falls on, like, a nice sofa. And it's just sitting there, and there's a funny musical cue to give a farcical element. And, of course, Daniel Craig, being the very serious and also sly guy he is, just takes the hook and tosses it across the the area and gets up from the couch and, like, fixes his suit. So it kind of reminds me of this idea here, where it's, like, a very serious sort of, like, way to evade something, and then you just fall into something unexpected, in this case, the melons. 
Yes, but he's not out of the woods just yet because uh, the thugs are right on his tail. And he decides to go into a restaurant to lose them. And there we see his weapon of choice, a frying pan. Yes, putting some pots and pans is a good use. Uh, it's actually funny because, again, we talked about this, I think, last time. Whereas we think about this sort of environmental stuff, uh, especially in the Staff of Kings game and even Emperor's Tomb as well. That's not a big thing in the movies. Um, and it's funny, people who use pots and pans more, at least in the movies, would be Marion. Remember, there's that one scene in the basket chase scene in Raiders where she uses the pan and frying pan and just knocks the guy out when she hides in that door area. So, yeah, it's funny we laugh about this, but that's not like a very sort of indie-esque thing. Uh, but it is funny that they throw it in here. Um, and he's obviously, uh, there's, a, there's a great quote here that Indy says. He's like, he's determined to make me part of the main course. As the guy grabs him by the neck and is grappling him. And then there's a funny scene here which reminds me a lot of sort of like the fighting style and the PSP version of Staff of Kings. We almost talked about like just the fact that there's kind of this just almost farcical, over-the-top sort of like fighting with all of the goons, right? They just swarm all of these goons who are easy to fight and you just have to use all your environments to, you know, to, to your uh, advantage. And that's when here Indy grabs the gas range on the stove and lights the guy on fire. And then uh, it's a great shot of like Indy knocking some sense into him, right? Uh, right after that scene, I wanted to ask you about this. There's a quote that uh, Indy doesn't finish his sentence because a guy uh, uh, comes up and, and attacks him. Uh, but he says um, uh, a line that I thought was so fascinating. He says, Marcus may have to look for a new, and then it says dot, dot, dot. What do you think he was going to say there? I was curious about this, and I was kind of, um, you know, thinking about this and oscillating between a couple of different responses. Uh, but what do you think was Indy's original response for that before he got cut off? I think, you know, maybe Job or a new archaeologist, probably. <laughs> Considering, you know, Indy was just about as, uh, just about toast there. So he's like, probably Marcus, you know, he, he's probably going to have to look for a new professor and archaeologist. Yeah, I thought a funny one would have been he had to look for a new friend. Uh, Ooh, I thought that would have been a, that's a funny rough. thing in there. Yeah, um, yeah, but I was just I was curious about that because uh, anytime he mentions Marcus, you know, I'm always like, "Ooh, what is he going to say?" And then he didn't finish the sentence because some guy showed up. So I thought that was funny. Um, and speaking of guys, Katanga then shows up and uh, was able to kind of uh, rescue Indy, so to speak, and evade uh, the rest of the guys here. Um, as we we cut to the next scene here in which uh, we see they uh, quickly leave the dock as uh, someone is after Indy. We don't know who, and whoever it was hired, you know, tons and tons of, of uh, guys to, to fight Indy, uh, some sort of gang of some sort here. And um, yeah, so I thought it was really, really interesting as we see kind of uh, Indy and Katanga go off into, into the sort of night sky uh, on the Bantu wind on the ocean water. Yeah, so I actually love Katanga's response to this. He actually says, Just as the past is your life, Indy, so the seas of the world are mine. Treat them with respect, and they'll return a serenity like nothing else on Earth. And that really signifies, you know, he's giving, you know, Indy a good, friendly piece of advice, but he's all too soon cut off when they're receiving a boarding request, and it's Katanga's like, Boarding? But who? And, uh, you know... Just because they're on the ocean doesn't mean there can also be danger from what looks like uh, another big sub, or at least sharks, as they call them here. 
And yeah, it's funny that when we see the boarding request, he says sharks. I don't know if that was like supposed to be some funny remark or something, but he looks through the binoculars, which we see a sketch of that, which was fantastic, by the way. And yeah, it's like this Japanese cruiser and he says sharks. I don't know if he was kidding or if like he thought it was sharks or what. I mean, it was kind of funny there that they included that. And we see from earlier in the comic, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, Emperor Kiyoji Hiroto uh, is here. And uh, he was the commander of the uh, Japanese cruiser, and he's now coming to board the ship. And he says something that I thought was very interesting, kind of in the style of kind of an indie villain. You will forgive this unfortunate intrusion. As he starts to ask questions, uh, because apparently uh, some sort of American uh, helped uh, sort of this uh, group of rebels steal a relic from a Tokyo museum. And my first reaction was, would Indy actually be involved in something like that? Because that to me seems more grave, grave robber-esque. And I'm not sure if this actually was referencing something that Indy had done, or if it was like actually mistaken identity. Um, but Indy's bluff right after is hilarious. He's like, um, I really can imagine, you know, Harrison Ford doing this. He's like, me? Oh, gosh, no. I turned green just going up elevators, which was a little bit cheesy, but <laughs> kind of an interesting remark to an interesting exchange here between the Emperor. Yes, I also love the little sly, you know, uh, indie smirk and the eye the eyes uh, as he says that, you know, kind of looking, I guess, at the reader saying, you know, uh, he's, he's basically lying directly to, through his teeth. I mean, he is terrified of flying, but he's also lying straight through his teeth. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> and by the way, beautiful uh, sketches here of the forest and the ship kind of reminds you of kind of like the very jungle sort of sequences that we see in a lot of Indiana Jones sort of content. I uh, really like that. And um, there's a really great description, by the way, in the narration that I wanted to read. Um, as Indy discovers uh, the, the, temp uh, the Temple Mount and the statue of uh, Shenghua, he says something. He says, Familiar rush of wonder, the hunger to illuminate dark corners of history. I thought that was a really, really great explanation of kind of like Indy's own internal thoughts and maybe his sort of feelings on what he feels when he sees all these great discoveries. Because let's keep in mind, you know, when we're watching these movies or an episode or whatever, we're as intrigued to see what Indy finds as Indy is. And I thought that was a really great description of sort of what Indy, someone who is, does this, you know, for a living, how he feels when he finds all these archaeological discoveries. Because it's not just all fun and games, right? That's one of the things that I feel like I don't like about the comics. They do make these a little bit more... I don't want to say kid-friendly, but I, I will say that they're a little bit more comical in a sense that, you know, we do kind of laugh at Indy's expense in these a little bit more than the movies. So it's kind of nice that they also incorporate that element. Like, there really is some historical significance um, also for Indy in finding all of these archaeological discoveries. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I also love, you know, they find this huge temple and they go in thinking it's, you know, completely safe and... uh Right as Indy is, you know, uh, discovering all the porcelain and gold, he turns around and sees the pirates. And the lady leading them uh, kind of reminds me of Irina, but there's also a guy in the sombrero, um, and he was the one who was uh, slyly smirking in uh, the cell uh, as he heard Captain Katanga and Indy talking about, you know, uh, breaking out. Yeah, and I really kind of felt, at least to me, I felt like that was a little anticlimactic. Um, I expected, you know, something obviously to come out of, uh, the fact that that guy at the prison was smirking. I mean, it was pretty obvious, like he was just smiling right at the comic and just like, oh, okay, that guy's obviously evil. He's obviously going to come back. But then he wasn't the leader of sort of this like 
group of pirates i don't know it just felt like okay well what was the point i don't know it just it didn't feel like it had any sort of conclusion or finality there uh but anyway um yeah i love what you said there about uh the sort of leader of the group this woman named vasquez kind of reminds me of Irina from crystal skull uh fantastic i really like that comparison i didn't even think of that uh, but yeah, she definitely has that demeanor about her as well. Um, and I love the next shot, by the way, of we don't actually see all the pirates, just their silhouette. I really thought that was a nice sketch right after that. Um, as we see that uh, the group of pirates was actually uh, who tried to capture him originally. Remember, Indy had this whole fight on the dock in Panama with Katanga, blah, blah, blah. We did not know who was actually like going after him. We had no clue whatsoever. And now we realize it was the pirates from before, which I thought was really cool. Yes, we do. We realize it's before. And, you know, I love how he uh, kind of insults the lady. And, uh, you know, she says, you will dearly pay us. Uh, he, as she slaps Indy, uh, enough time to, uh, shatter the single lantern illuminating them, and, you know, chaos basically erupts from there with a bunch of, you know, gunshots ringing out everywhere. Right, and he actually takes the lantern and sets the temple mount on fire, which I thought was kind of interesting, as he quickly escapes, uh, as Katanga also gets pretty feisty, and they all evade the whole thing, and, uh, we see that the pirates trailed them, uh, with a U.S. naval sub, which we soon find out that the pirates just stole. And um, I'm really wondering, you know, where these pirates are really getting their uh, their resources from if they're able to steal a U.S. Navy ship without anyone noticing. Uh, so I have a lot of questions for these pirates because they certainly are up to no good. Yes, definitely. I mean, they're I mean, who goes around and steals a submarine, especially from the U.S. Navy? I'm pretty sure that would take a lot of skill to be for their pirates, so they probably have some experience. But still, a U.S. Naval sub, that's a bit excessive, you know. And no sooner do they find out that they trailed them using the periscope, Indy turns around and she's right back there uh, wanting a bunch of uh, loot that Indy has, supposedly. Right, exactly. And so there's this, you know, whole scene, again, another exchange here, uh, where Vasquez has her way, right? She captures all the prisoners, uh, puts them on board her, her, her submarine, and then takes Indy uh, alone. And we see that Indy actually escapes uh, the guard who took him, but he actually gets stuck in this quicksand. And uh, it transitions back and forth um, to Katanga fighting off the pirates on the Bantu Wind. Uh, we see that he got captured. Uh, again, in order to persuade him, one of his henchmen actually got shot, like, right in front of his eyes, which was horrible. And then, so he tries to fight off the henchmen. Katanga uh, jumps overboard and doesn't come up for four minutes. And so Vazquez is like, okay, he's surely dead. Um, but to be quite honest with you, this is Captain Katanga, for crying out loud. And we know he's going to be back again, uh, which I thought was kind of a cool scene there. Meanwhile, just as he says anything couldn't be worse, you know, uh, rock crabs come right in and uh, they are, you know, they're about to, you know, snap at Indy and he's now, you know, considering drowning is starting to look pretty good. Right, and the whole last scene here is actually, it's beautifully drawn, by the way. I love the sketches here, uh, especially you can see kind of like the sweat running down his face, right? He gets embroiled in this quicksand. He's like, oh, I'll get out of this. Then the tide comes rolling in. Yeah, right. And then finally, a huge sort of family of crabs just come flying in. And there's that great sort of last shot there where you can only see Indy's neck and face as these crabs are like coming in this sort of whirlpool of sand there. And that's the end of part 
part one of The Sea Butchers, a two-part series, by the way, which, did we even mention that at the beginning of this episode? I don't think we did. Uh, this is a two-part series, actually. Uh, so it ends on that sort of cliffhanger there. How is Indy going to get out of this trap? Uh, which is actually similar to Africa Screams. Remember from that comic, uh, Indy is behind a cave with Marion, and we see at the end of part one, there's a bear that's about to attack them. So similar kind of like physical forces, right? I can definitely hear the uh, bug tunnel death trap music from Temple of Doom <laughs> playing, right? As all these crabs are coming around him. But uh, yeah, that's the end of part one, The Sea Butchers, uh, most famously known for the return of Jock Lindsay and Captain Katanga. Uh, what do we think of this one? Yeah, so I actually really love the incorporation of Captain Katanga and Jock back in this one. You know, we haven't really seen them in any of the other comics, and we don't see them in any of the other movies besides Raiders, but them ha being here, and especially, you know, Captain Katanga has more of a major kind of role in this comic than he even does in the movie, and I kind of really like that. We get to know him more. We get to see the relationship between Indy and Katanga grow as, you know, they, uh, Indy busts him out of jail and all that, and overall, I think that really made this comic about 10 times better than it would have been which would have just been a dull comic without those two characters being back here. I'd have to 100% agree with you. I think it was pretty obvious that the anchor of this comic and the success of this comic was rooted in the return of Captain Simon Katanga and Jock Lindsay, two fantastic characters who, like you said, I mean, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, they're not characters that are super flashy. You know, they're not, you know, super exciting characters or they don't have sort of an envious personality about them or they're not sort of, you know, um, feisty like Marion or, you know, uh, villainous like Tote. You know, they don't have that sort of big personality to them. They're very just chill, relaxed characters, but they have a little bit of, you know, kind of sly wit about them, and they have that bond with Indy that we love to see because there were just those small hints of it in Raiders. And the other thing I will say as well, I love how they didn't get too deep with this. I think it would have been bad if we, you know, learned all about Jock, or we got into his backstory, or he was in the whole comic, or if Katango, you know, if it didn't involve going on the Bantu win, or whatever the case may be. I just thought the way they were utilized was perfect. It was a little bit more of a hint. It leaves you wanting more, but it doesn't ruin the characters for you. And that's what I think is really a success about this comic, because... Again, the, the story itself is pretty simple. I mean, we've seen Indy go after sort of lost civilizations before. We've seen him go after statues. We've seen Marcus at Marshall College before. We've seen Indy evade, you know, pirates. We've seen him in planes before. Great, great, great. I'm not saying any of that was bad, but to include these characters was just tons and tons of fun. Uh, so yeah, that's the end of part one. Uh, we will be taking a look at part two in the very next episode of the podcast. We're not going to wait eight months again like we did with Africa Screams. Uh, <laughs> just to give you that right now. Uh, we're going to go right into the heat of things in the next one. So yeah, hopefully you enjoyed this comic as much as we did. And again, if you're interested in reading these comics or rereading them, uh, definitely go to your local comic store. Uh, chances are they probably have these uh, Indiana Jones comics um, you know, tucked away in a vault. Who knows, you may have to fight some pirates or go through a couple of caves and uh, traps to get them. Uh, but, you know, you'll probably be able to pick them up for a couple of bucks at your local comic store, see all those great 1980s ads in there, and get a nostalgic throwback if you read these when you were a kid. Uh, otherwise, I, I don't think we've mentioned this up until this point. Uh, in 2008, uh, when Dark Horse bought out all the comics from Marvel, they made an omnibus edition uh, right around the time Crystal Skull came out, which actually has all the comics, I believe, in one big edition. Might be split up, split up into three parts, actually, can't remember. Um, but either way, you can also buy that if you're looking for something a little bit new and more updated. Uh, and as always, if you are a fan of the Marvel comics, reach out to us. Facebook, Twitter, you can also email us indianajonesuniverse at gmail.com what comic would you like us to review uh, we have had a little bit of requests on uh, will we actually tackle the uh, 
uh, Dark Horse comics? And the answer to that question is yes. Once we finish the Marvel ones that we have planned, we are going to move on to the Dark Horse comics. Uh, so that about concludes today's episode. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and remember to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other podcast platforms. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, be sure to check out our website at www.theindianajonesuniverse.com and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Once again, I'm Max. And I'm Will. And until next time, so, so long, Dr. Jones. Jones.